William Sangster was an outstanding Methodist minister, a pastor of one of the largest Methodist churches in England, in London, England. He was the director of missions for the Methodist Church. He was born in 1900, <coughs> excuse me, died in 1960. He developed muscular atrophy. And the last two years of his life, he was not able to walk or talk. And one Easter morning, he wrote a note to his daughter. On Easter morning. It's terrible to wake up Easter morning and have no voice to shout. He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout, He is risen. You have a voice. I have a voice. Say it. He is risen. Risen indeed. You remember the story I told you two or three years ago, true story? happened in a church school, Catholic church school in New England. Uh, the priest was teaching about um, Easter and the resurrection, and one of the children in the class, nine or ten-year-old uh, girl, said, what was the first thing, <coughs> excuse me, what was the first thing that Jesus said when he came out of the tomb? And the priest said, I'm not sure, but let me check the scripture and we'll think about that and See if we cannot find the answer. What was the first thing that Jesus said when he came out of the tomb? Well, another little girl was sitting there, nine or ten years of age, and she said, I know what he said when he came out of the tomb. He said, ta-da, you remember that? Well, it's been picked up in cartoons, B.C. and everywhere else. He came out of the tomb and said, ta-da, he is risen, ta-da, he is risen indeed. And he's come to be in this very room, but even more personally than that, he has come to be in every heart and every life. A number of years ago, I've shared some of this story with you before. I was visiting with Bishop Fulton J. Sheen a number of years ago, about a year or two before he died, and he had retired. I had the privilege of being with him in his home for a couple of hours. We talked books and sermons and what was happening in the world. And he, uh, I said, when are you going to be speaking again, Bishop? And he said, well, this uh, coming Passion Week, I'm going to be having a series of services in a Catholic church here in New York City. And I said, well, what are you going to speak on? What, what are you going to say? He said, well, I have uh, spoken on it and preached on it for over 50 years. And I decided not to look at any of the notes that I had done before, any of the manuscripts I had written before, that I would just read the story and let it speak in a fresh, up-to-date way to me. And I said, well, Bishop, I would love to, to be there and to hear what comes out of the overflow of 50 years. Well, I've been preaching this gospel, endeavoring to, for over 50 years. 40 of them in this church, and I have preached hundreds of sermons on Easter. But I didn't go back and look at anything except the Scripture. I didn't take out any of the notes that I have through all the years. And so I felt impressed to, pass, to read a passage of Scripture 
and speak on a passage of scripture that I've never preached on before. I've spoken out of this chapter many, many times, for it's the great resurrection chapter of the Bible, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. You turn to it in your own Bible. If you want to use the Bible in the book rack in front of you, turn to page 1139, and you will be at 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read it and listen to it and read it as I read. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. As to one... The scripture says abnormally born, which really is an inadequate expression of what he says in this passage. What he says is, as to one, born almost too late. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Do you hear what Paul says there in that first sentence, that third verse, first paragraph, third verse? For I received, I received, listen, The gospel is God-made, not man-made. He didn't create this. He didn't concoct this. He didn't make it up in his own mind. He received it. Just like a wide receiver on the football team. He doesn't throw the ball and catch it. He doesn't kick the ball and catch it. He doesn't block and catch it. It comes to him. It is passed to him. And that's the way the gospel comes to you and it comes to me. We do not have it. It is a gift from God. It is handed to us on a platter of grace and love by the hand of the Lord himself. I received from the Lord that which I have preached to you and proclaimed to you. And I stand here in all humility with praise to God for everything that he's ever said and done through me that helped people, that it wasn't from me. I didn't make it up. It didn't originate with me. It came from God. We preach not ourselves, but Christ crucified and risen. It's a gospel that comes as a gift to all mankind. I received it. Now this was written about 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. This was the first written passage of scripture telling us about the resurrection. Written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, before the four gospels. This was the first written account of the resurrection. And it happened about 20 years, 15 to 20 years after the death and resurrection 
of Jesus. Now, let me ask you something. You probably, many of you do know. But what happened during those first 20 years after the death of Jesus? What happened? Well, after the crucifixion of Jesus or during the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were so terrified, so frightened, that the Bible says they locked themselves in the upper room. They locked themselves for fear that they were going to be next, that they were going to be taken and crucified just as Jesus had been. They were terrified. They were frightened, cringing men and women. And suddenly, something happened. And these people who had been terrified and hiding suddenly opened the door and walked out as bold as lions and went up and down the streets from house to house telling people and stood up and began to proclaim the gospel that we have seen him, we have met him, he has transformed us and we have come to bring you good news that Jesus Christ is alive and he has conquered death and the grave. And you know what happened? Thousands of people believed. Within the first 50 days, Thousands and thousands and thousands of people believe 3,000 in one day. And they didn't have a Bible. They did not have any literature. They didn't have a church. What did they have? They had people who had had an experience. And it just exploded from them. And they shared it with everybody around. And thousands of people suddenly became Christians. And they were completely transformed. You know, there are those who say that... uh, One of the theories of the resurrection is the stolen body theory. That the disciples got together in the upper room and they concocted this thing and said, look, we don't want to be made fools of, so I tell you what let's do. Let's go steal his body and go hide it somewhere and then we will go out and begin to to preach that he's alive and we'll start a whole new religion. Let's do that. Now there's some very well-meaning and well-educated people who subscribe to that idea. Which just convinces me again that some people can be educated beyond their intelligence. Can, Can you, now you think for a moment, can you for a moment think that these people would get together and say, we know it's a lie, we know he's dead, that he's in a grave, and he'll never live again, but we're going to go out and proclaim that he's alive, and you know what? We're going to do it, and even though it's going to take our lives, we're going to preach that. Every single one of those men in that room died a martyr's death. Every one of them, except John, and he died in exile on a rocky island in the sea. Would you and I have been willing to die for a lie? I believe sooner or later, conscience or courage, one, would have caused them to say, wait a minute, it's not true, it's not true. But not one single soul recanted, not one. Would you and I be willing to die for a lie? I wouldn't. I imagine most of us would have trouble being willing to die for the truth. And here they were, willing to and did lay down their lives because they knew he was alive and because of him and the cross and the resurrection and the flowering of the cross that they had eternal life irrespective of what happened to them in this life. Incredible what happened in those first 50 days. Now I want to take a few moments and share with you what came to me as I thought about this passage of scripture and just tried to crawl inside of it and imagine what Paul was saying to me and to you, some of the underlying messages of these appearances. Look at the fifth verse. He appeared to Peter. 
and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Seventh verse, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. You know the story of Peter. He had been a follower of the Lord from the very beginning. He was one of Jesus' favorites. Simon Peter was this impetuous, spontaneous person. He was a person who, when he didn't know what to say, he'd say it. Uh, he, he was always, someone said of Simon Peter, he's just like everybody else, only more so. He's called the American disciple because he's so much like so many of us. I mean, one moment he's on a mountaintop confessing the Lord and the next moment he's denying him. And when he denied him there, he followed him, you know, after they'd arrested Jesus. And they took Jesus to Caiaphas' house and Simon Peter followed afar off. He stayed back there kind of hanging back in the shadows and then got over there and was standing around the fire and they came up to him. A woman came up to him and said, you're one other, aren't you? He said, no, I'm not one other. And he got moved away to another fire over here. Somebody over there said, you're one other, aren't you? He said, no, I'm telling you, I don't know him. I don't know him. And it happened a third time. And as my son Michael pointed out in a Sunday school lesson to his class last Sunday, in the Greek, when you look at the text of it and the structure of it, on the third time when they accused Simon Peter of being a follower of Jesus, it says he cursed and denied him. What it really says is he cursed him. I don't know the so-and-so. And about that time, Jesus, chained, was led out of Caiaphas' house. And Simon Peter was standing right over there by the fire. And their eyes met. Volumes were spoken without a word being said. And the scripture says, Simon went out and wept bitterly. He thought he was done. All of his hopes and dreams had crashed to the ground. Forever, he was relegated to the outside. And then, Jesus shows up. And he looks at Peter. And I don't know what went on in this encounter. But I kind of think Jesus said, Simon, it's okay. I love you. And I forgive you. It's okay. Now I want us to hear that this morning. I don't know who you are and where you are. You may have come in here today thinking it's been so long since you were in church that the roof is going to fall in. You may feel like an outsider. Let me tell you something. There is no person too far away from God. No person so far away in whatever's been happening in the individual's life, whatever they've said, whatever they've done. There's not a person in this room that has been so far away that Jesus is not going to show up today on your front doorstep and say to you, you're okay. 
I forgive you. I know. I know. But I love you. And I forgive you. If you've lost self-confidence. You feel like you've betrayed yourself and others. He shows up. Notice where Jesus starts. Jesus always starts where society so often stops. He starts at the bottom of the list, not the top of the list. He didn't go to see Pilate. He didn't go to see Herod. He didn't go to see the religious leaders of the day. He went to a man who cursed him and had been his best friend. He starts with those who feel the most outcast and the most downcast. He started at the bottom of the list. Jesus did not come primarily initially for the high and mighty. He came for the low and lonely and the little and the lost. That's where he begins. And that's where he begins with each one of us. He appeared to Simon. Then he appeared to the 12. I've already alluded to the transformation that took place in their lives. They went out and became as bold as lions. They went out to be martyred. Because they were proclaiming this incomparable, inimitable message of the love and grace of God. And then he appeared to 500 at one time. I want you to use your imagination. We all have one. Use your imagination. I did this and I asked Martha too and she did it. And we talked about it a little bit. Try to imagine who was a part of that 500. Who were in that 500. We don't know. But I wish they had taken a picture, sort of a group picture of, of who was there. And I'm going to put into that picture who I think some of the people that were there. I have no way of knowing, of course. But uh, 500 who believed in him, 500 who had followed him. I know Mary Magdalene was there, out of whom he had cast seven devils, which means she was just full of the devil. I believe the woman at the well who had five husbands and was divorced of all of them was now living with the man she wasn't married to in Jesus. And she had that wonderful long conversation there at the well, at Jacob's well in Samaria. I believe she showed up. I believe the little boy that gave him the five loaves and two fishes when he fed the 5,000, I believe he was there. I believe Zacchaeus, the businessman who had ripped off everybody in town and was the most hated man in town. And Jesus comes to town and asks if he can go to his house for lunch. And they go home and something happens to Zacchaeus. We don't know what was said in that house, but we know what happened to Zacchaeus. He came out and started throwing his money around to everybody saying, look, I've ripped you off and here I'm going to give it back to you two, three or four times. This man has done something in my life and he's turned me loose to love the world. Zacchaeus was there. I believe every blind person he ever healed was there. I believe every leper was there. I believe every crippled man, the fellow from the pool of Bethesda who'd been sick for all those years, he was there with his family. Martha mentioned Barabbas. I believe she's right. I believe Barabbas was there. The man that the crowd chose over Jesus, crucified Jesus and give us Barabbas. I believe he was there. I believe he stood there looking at him. He said, you took my place. You didn't deserve to die. I did. You took my place. 
And I can stand here and so can you and look at that cross and say, you took my place. I don't know who was there, but something happened to those 500. And within about 50 years, they had transformed the Roman Empire and had pulled the rug out from underneath political despotism and put a song in the heart of the world. Something happened. And the something that happened was someone who's still happening here and now in our lives. 500 at one time. And then my imagination explodes again. He appeared to James, his half-brother. You know, Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary was a virgin. She and Joseph had children. Jesus had brothers and sisters. I believe James was the oldest half-brother of Jesus. And none of his family ever believed on him until after the resurrection. They even thought he was crazy once and went to get him. And here's James. Didn't believe, questioned, doubted. And Jesus goes to see his little brother, James. Can you begin to imagine what they talked about? Won't know till we get to heaven. But can you imagine? I don't know what happened, but suddenly James became the most enthusiastic proclaimer of the Christian gospel, wrote one book in the Bible entitled James, and tradition says he was martyred because of his commitment to his big brother. Who is my big brother and yours? All in the family of God. Because Christ Jesus is our elder brother. What a conversation. And then, last of all, he appeared to me also, Paul says. To one that almost missed it. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He supervised the stoning of Stephen. He was breathing out, the scripture says, threatenings and slaughterings against the church. Against these people who believed that this Jew had been resurrected. I don't know what happened. I don't know how it happened. But he appeared to Paul. I don't know whether you actually saw him or not. Maybe you did. I don't doubt that people have seen the Lord. I never have. I wouldn't question anybody who feels they have. I've never heard him say anything audibly to me. Maybe you have, and that's wonderful. I wouldn't doubt that at all. He can do anything he wants to do. But he's never spoken audibly to me. But let me tell you, he's spoken to me in impressions in my heart that shouted louder than a thousand voice choir 
I knew that he was dealing with me. And here's Paul saying, I persecuted the church. I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even belong to be a part of this group. Now look back. Every one of the people I mentioned were martyred. Peter, all the apostles, the disciples, many of the 500 because millions were martyred in the name of Jesus through the centuries. And Paul, because of his commitment to Jesus Christ, was led out of the city of Rome under orders from Nero and they cut off his head. Something happened to the man and something that happened was the someone who died and who rose again. Now I want to say, I want to make it very clear that I want to say with Paul the statement that he made, by the grace of God, I am what I am. If God has ever used me to say anything that helps you or encourages you, I want you to know that I know that it didn't come from me. It may have come through me, and that would be an answer to prayer, and for that I would be grateful. But I didn't originate this. I didn't create this. I didn't call myself to be here to preach the gospel. If you had talked to me 51, 52, 53 years ago and said that someday you'd be preaching to a great group of people in a wonderful church like this, I would have thought you were crazy. I want to tell you, some of you won't believe this, but I want to tell you it's the truth. I was a, I was a terrible public speaker. Now I'm telling you, I couldn't make a talk that anybody wanted to listen to. And Martha, not being critical at all, but just being an uh, objective part of the audience once when I was in the Marine Corps and was home on Liberty and I was asked to give a talk, a devotional in Sunday school class on the American flag. Well, I got up there and I don't know what I said, but it obviously was pretty poor because after Martha and I were married and been married a number of years, she told me the impression she had the first time she heard me speak. She said, I was in that Sunday school class because whether you believe it or not, she's younger than I am. <laughs> uh, she was in that, in that Sunday school class and she said, Buckner, I heard that talk you made on the flag and when I heard it, I thought they should fly the flag upside down <laughs> as a sign of distress. But that, was, that was the poorest thing that was ever said. Thank the Lord the flag survived in spite of the talk uh, that I made. But I want you, I want you to know Whatever gifts I have are from God and whatever he has done or is doing or will do through my life, to God be the glory. It is not my gospel. It is his gospel. It is his good news. And I am 
Well, I am by the grace of God. And whatever you and I are and whatever you are and whatever you become will be not because of your own efforts. It will be because of your response to the fathomless, limitless, incomparable grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul Paul says in that 10th verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Do you hear what he's trying to say to us? It's grace and it's grace and it's grace. It is all by grace. He tried the law and it failed him. And it will fail anyone. It is by grace that we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Louis Braille was a little boy and had an awl, A-W-L, in his hand. All is a pointed instrument used, as most of you know, uh, to put holes in leather. He accidentally stuck an awl in his eye. And his eye got infected and it infected the other eye and Louis Braille went blind as a little boy. He talked a few years later with a man who had been in the military and who had talked about night writing or night communication, a way to communicate without speaking. And so it gave him an idea. And so he developed the Braille alphabet. And from that, millions of blind people were able to see through their fingers. They could read. Now he died before the Braille system was recognized. He never received any accolades from what he accomplished. But what is so fascinating and so interesting is that the very instrument that blinded him and all is the instrument used to make the Braille letters. The very instrument of death that caused our Savior to die is the instrument whereby we are saved. This is God's all. A-W-L for all A-L-L of us. God took the cross and turned it into a flowering tree. God took the cross and turned it into a crown. And listen, God will take all of your disappointments, all of your failures and frailties, He will take all of the stuff that's happened in your life and he will turn it to good. He will work all things together for good in your life if you love him as he first loved me and you. I know you want to trust him if you've never done that. I just believe you do. Let me urge you to today. I urge you to give your heart and your life to him. Whether you join this church or not is not the primary thing. I'll help you join any other church you want to join. I'm not talking about that. 
primarily at all. I'm just urging you to accept what he did for you and the life he wants to give you to let him come into your life. If you've never done that, do it. We would love to share it with you and you with others if you'd come, whether you want to join Trinity Baptist Church or not. If you trust Christ as your Savior, and you want to talk about church, we'll do that. But if you trust him, just come forward. I'll be right here to greet you. Or if you're a Christian and want to be a member of this church, what do you have to do to be a member of this church? Just say, I want to be. That's all. You don't have to pass any tests. You don't have to bring any references. Just bring yourself. Just give yourself and say, I want to be a part of a fellowship of sinners saved by grace. Because you know all 500 of those folks that Jesus met with, you know what it was? It wasn't a collection of saints. It was a collection of sinners. And all this is here this morning is a collection of sinners surrounded by four walls. We're not here because we're good, because he is. We're here because of his grace. Accept it. Be a part of a church that preaches it, endeavors to practice it. I'll be here to greet you and to welcome you. Don't move unless you're going to come make a decision. Don't interrupt someone's decision making by inadvertently distracting them by moving. I know you wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to do that. Big crowd here. Huge crowd. I'll be right here. Don't miss the gift of life. Don't miss it. Let's stand. Let's sing.